it was like, yeah, you have hit the ball. And This is Hypercritical, a weekly talk show ruminating on exactly what is wrong in the world of Apple and related technologies and businesses. Nothing is so perfect that it cannot be complained about by my friend and yours, John Syracuse. I'm Dan Benjamin. Today is Friday, September 28th, 2012. This is episode number 87 of Hypercritical. I'd like to say thanks very much to our three amazing sponsors, Harvest. GetHarvest.com, Gazelle.com, and MailChimp.com. We would also like to say thank you so much to our bandwidth sponsor. It's been here with us this whole month of September. Love it if you would check these guys out. Igloo, your digital workplace. Give updates, have discussions, and share files with your team all in one place. Check them out, sign up, and get started. IgloosOftware.com slash 5x5. Hello, John. Hello, Dan. How are you this fine Friday afternoon and last Friday in September 2012? I'm just fine. Great. It's a rainy day here in New England. Rainy day here today, too, in Austin. In Austin? Yeah, rain little, in Texas? Well, a little, bit of, a little bit of rain. All right. It's supposed to rain more later, but who What's knows? a little bit of rain in Austin? It's like half a centimeter. <laughs> they do get rain here. There is a rainy season. There is a rainy season. Is that just it this morning? <laughs> yeah, it begins and ends it begins and ends today. <laughs> yeah. So what's going down? How are you? This time for week? some time for some follow up. F you. That's what's going down? All right. Yeah. Yeah. We're gonna we're gonna do it again today. We're gonna do another short show. It's gonna happen. Whatever you say, I can do whatever you want to do. Say I'm we're cranking here. Last time I did a what I thought was a short show. Anything under the two hours, by the way, in case you're wondering, is what I consider short. So I said, I'm going to do a short show and people say, oh, like an hour, 40 minutes. That is short. For you, right. 119 minutes. That's a short show. That's right. We're going to do another one today. All right. First bit of follow-up is from Shira Wild. And he has some follow-up on the topic of Apple Store's replacing your product with new versus refurbished. Now, if you remember on the last show, we had an Apple genius write in to say that they do all their replacements from retail stock. Like you're not going to get a refurbished thing. You're going to get a brand new device right out of the box, just like as if you had bought one new. Now, Shiro wrote in to contest this account and say, he says, as anyone who has ever had an iPhone or iPad replaced in the Apple Store will know, and I do because I've had both replaced, they do not give you a brand new replacement. They may give you a so-called remanufactured product, right. which potentially can, contains parts taken from previously used products. They even make you sign something that says you understand and accept this. I've done this twice. So now I don't know what to believe. Apple Genius writes in and says, nope, it's always from retail stock. And then a person writes in to say they had to sign a document saying that they understand that what you're getting is not an actual new replacement. So does that bother you? I don't know. It's a he's it's a he said he said situation here. I don't know who to believe. Uh, I haven't had any of these experiences myself, so I can't say one way or the other. Although maybe I will when I finally get around to making a Genius Bar appointment. Uh, yet another Genius Bar appointment for my Thunderbolt display. It's I haven't taken it back since the last time I complained about it. Right, so update time. update us on the stat the status, or as you would say, status of. Your display. You had you, three times you've taken this thing in. Two times. Two times. Yeah. First time I took it in, they did two replacements during that single visit. So that counts as a single visit, but they swapped out parts two times. Got it back. Didn't work. Brought it back in. They replaced all the same parts again. Got it back. It did work. 
but either I forgot to check whether the camera worked or uh-huh. the camera went bad sometime in the future. So now I have something where the camera, the camera doesn't work. Like it doesn't recognize that it even has a camera in the display at all anywhere. So I got to bring it back again. And this will be the third trip. I just haven't gotten around to it yet. I did extend the warranty, which is why I'm not in such a hurry to bring it in because I've got time. And, you know, everything else works. The camera not working isn't that big of a deal. Uh, so when I do bring it in, maybe this time they'll give me a whole new one or maybe they'll just open it up and reconnect the camera. Maybe they forgot to plug in a cable or something. I don't know. I'd be perfectly happy if they just opened it up and plugged it in the camera because so far this one is working and I don't want to take my chances with getting a replacement that has the problems my original one had, even if it's a brand new replacement. So we'll see. Um, And speaking of the innards of Apple's stuff, on the last show, we talked about the iPhone 5, physical features of the iPhone 5, the iPhone 5 that I still have not yet seen in person, although my brother got one this week. Well, I haven't seen his yet either. I haven't seen anybody's. And I didn't get to the Apple store to see it. But anyway, we talked a lot about the design last week and about the lightning connector and Dustin Masterson wrote in to point me to, almost immediately after last week's show, to point me to the iFixit teardown of the iPhone 5, in particular about the uh, lightning connector that has the little dents in the side of it that I speculated, like maybe little ball bearings going to those dents to kind of make it like click in, you know, and click back out. And he sent me this thing from iFixit. I'll put it in the chat room here. This is the zoomed in picture of what does the thing that receives the lightning connector look like? And it's got the lightning connector in the same picture. So it's got a, you know, a little thing with contacts on it. Is that eight in there? One, two, three, four. Yeah. Six, seven, eight, nine, nine. Yeah, I think it's nine little pins there. I don't know. Maybe I can't count. Anyway, uh, the key part is in the upper left where it shows the thing that grabs onto the little dents in the sides of the lighting bolt connector. And it is not two tiny ball bearings on springs. It, what it actually is is a very cheap, cruddy-looking bent piece of metal with curves on the end. And kind of like a, like a spring-type clip where it's squished together and when you press the connector in, it spreads it apart slightly and those little things click in. I'm... You know, I'd imagine trying to make tiny ball bearings and tiny springs at these sizes is impractical. And this is probably the best way to do this is just uh, destroys my illusion of the magic machinery that's going on inside there. In reality, probably the most reliable and best thing to use is this bent piece of metal. And that's what they're actually using. Uh, So there you have it. Illusion shattered of the magical world inside Apple's devices. Uh, And related to... A lightning connector when I was talking about when I was defending the move to the lightning connector and saying I couldn't believe that people thought that they should stick with a 30 bin connector after 10 years and complaining that they're changing the connector. It seems, it seems to me the biggest no-brainer ever to get rid of that old connector. And I said, come on, people. It's not like, you know, it, it would be like PC still coming with PS2 connections. And when I said that, I should have put in my normal hedging and everything, but I figured, well, I'll let it fly. Well, about three minutes after the show ended, <laughs> Mike Wallstrom wrote in to say, say, you mentioned that new PCs don't come with PS2 connections. Wrong. <laughs> my new PC comes with PS2 connection. And so he gave me a link to the PC. This is a, a a beautiful PC. The product name is the Acer AZ3731-UR21P. 21.5 Very desktop computer. Yes, I totally the the AZ3731 UR21P is one of my favorite pieces. <laughs> yeah, I mean the the 21 uh the 21 b <laughs> was a piece of crap. I mean, you don't want that. You don't even know how to shorten it. You're trying to look for a spot for it. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> uh and you I have the Amazon link to it in the show notes, 
please, no one actually buy this machine. It looks terrible. Um, and then he he sent a zoomed in picture of the actual PS2 ports themselves. So there they are. Oh, there it is. There it is in the chat room. Thank you, John. Yes, and and you know, you maybe you can tell this from your misspent PC youth. <laughs> Why do they insist on making the colors of the plastic inside of the PS2 ports these hideous pastel colors? Like it must be some sort of widespread agreement because these disgusting colors have always you know do you recognize them like the yeah the VGA is always blue and the mouse I believe oh here it is in your picture the mouse is like this pastel sort of green and then the keyboard is a purple uh, and this is the way that it that it's always been and I remember. Way, way, way back, there were no colors, and people were always complaining that they didn't know, because, you know, us us Mac people are spoiled. You just plug something in, and it just works, and it was that way for a very, very, very long time. And, of course, the PS2-style connector for the mouse and keyboard looked the same, so people would complain. So they said, oh, well, we'll color code them. That's the, the way of the PCs. Don't, don't make it either or, color code. So that's what came about. But I don't know why they picked those colors. I think whoever first innovated that just did it and everyone else copied them as, as they are wont to do in the PC world. Yeah, that's, I mean, of all, they're hideous colors that probably don't match your color scheme. And like, they just, you can't kill them here. This is a modern day computer. It's still got those ugly colors in it. Uh, and re- aren't those ports the same? Like they're putting the little picture there and the different colors to make you feel better, but they're exactly equivalent, right? There's no... There's no actual difference between plugging your keep like if they're both PS2 ports, right? Yeah, they're the same, but one is for the mouse, one is for the keyboard. But for meaning like it's meaningless. It's like no, you to, can't you can't swap them. Why can't you swap them? You can't. The PC wants what it wants. You this can't interact. Sort of like IRQ conflict. What yeah, something like they're they're plugged in. They're they're hardwired. Man. Com one and com two. No, and, oh, you can't put the mouse into. No, you have to plug the key. Yeah, right here, Zaffo is saying this. It's a PS2. You have to plug the keyboard into the keyboard port. That's crazy. You can't swap them. How can how can you have two ports with, that are physically identical, but one of them? This is have- why I'm saying this is why they're color coded. It's not color coded, and the ki- the cable. Remember this, the cable uh, on the, because people were still be confused. They would, oh, the cables are color-coded. Yeah, yeah, so the end, the end of the cable for the keyboard would be the matching purple, and you would, then you'd, oh, that must go here. That must go here. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I don't yeah. know how people get, I know nothing about PCs. I don't want to know. Ugh. All right. Moving on. <laughs> about the slippery phone and by the way if you have all sorts of corrections about pcs these can you can direct these specifically okay. to dan look there is I, there is a color coding scheme thank you to who sent this smack foo i will add this to the show notes by the way you can find the show notes for this episode of hypercritical by going to 5x5.tv slash hypercritical slash 87 and you will see all of these notes but here there is something called the pc system design guide it says it's a series of hardware design requirements and recommendations for the IBM PC compatible personal computers compiled by Microsoft and Intel from 1997 to 2001. They were aimed to help manufacturers provide hardware that makes best use of the capabilities of Microsoft Windows operating system and to simplify the setup of such computers. Skipping down, here, are, here is the color guide. Green is for the PS2 mouse. Purple, PS2 keyboard. And then you have uh, black, red for USB, and white for USB 2 and sky blue for USB 3 and it just goes on and on and on. The uh, burgundy, burgundy for the burgundy parallel. For the parallel board, yeah. <laughs> or teal. Well, see, it's supposed to be purple for the PS3 <laughs> 2 keyboard and green, but they're not green and purple. They're like pastel <laughs> green and pastel purple, right. like white mixed in. Just, ugh. And of course, blue for the old analog monitor. Yeah. 15 pin VGA, our old friend. 
Maybe the next time Apple takes public questions from the audience, someone can ask, why don't you color code your ports with the official purple? <laughs> like, just like to follow up to the Intel sticker guy. All right. All right. So now let us move on to to slippery iPhones. Uh, last week, we talked that the title of last week's show was Naked Robotic Core. It was about how Apple is not addressing in any way the slipperiness of its devices. It is leaving that entirely as a third-party opportunity and simply making its device as small as it possibly can to give people the option if you want it to be, if you don't, if you think it's fine, you get it to be fine. If you don't think it's fine, you put your own case on it. So the best of uh, both worlds, because of course, if they put their own anti-slip design on the thing, it would be thicker and wear out and so on and so forth. Uh, so I get two types of feedback about this. Uh, the first one, this is this is a, a unique one that I hadn't heard before. This is Abby Beckard saying that uh, the three, the, the first iPhone, the 3D and 3GS were slippery, but the 4, 4S, and 5 have right-angled corners that uh, have significant grip on anything soft like your skin. So it's saying the sharp edges of the thing like dig into your skin and grip more than the curved ones do. That doesn't make sense to me from a physical perspective uh, because you would imagine that a curved surface would have more contact area than a sharp pointy edge, and it's all about how much surface-to-surface -surface contact there is in terms of friction, but maybe it also has to do with the pressure at the, if it's a small contact patch but higher pressure, but I don't know. Uh, either way, psychologically, he feels that uh, the 4 uh, the four or 4S and 5, since they have the right angle corners, provide more grip. The main piece of feedback I got about the slipperiness was that slipperiness is a key feature to get in and out of your pocket. Like, because if it's not slippery enough, it's a pain to get into your pocket and a pain to get out of your pocket. You want it to be slippery, so it slides right into your pocket, and so it slides right out. Uh, in this area, I would say that grippiness it also has an important function in your pocket because a phone that slides in and out of your pocket very easily is much more likely to slide out of your pocket when you're sitting on a couch uh you know or you get up from the couch and it comes out and that and you may say that sounds crazy but just after i had sent like a piece of feedback saying this to somebody someone on twitter or somewhere else sent me a story that they had just that day gotten up from a couch had their phone slide out of their pocket and crack on the floor uh, so that does happen so i i feel like grippiness also has a, a feed now obviously you don't want it to be super grippy because then really you know if it's really 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 grippy it is hard to get in out of your pocket but as someone who has had a silicone rubber total coverage on the back of my device case on all the iPod touches that I've owned and I put these things in my pockets I have no problem sliding this thing out and I can't imagine anything grippier than soft silicone rubber coating the entire back of an iPod touch I get it in and out of my pockets no problem so I don't think that's a reason not to for it to be slippery but again uh, the point of, of that show is not that Apple is neglecting its responsibility to make the things not slippery merely that what they've decided to do to address it is to not address it at all and concentrate on making the thing as small and as durable as possible they're making the naked robotic core and if that's what you want you've got it like that's the advantage of their decision not to do that if that's your ideal device and you don't care about slipperiness or you don't think it's slippery you think it's an advantage apple makes that product for you uh, but if you want it to not be slippery you have the option of adding a case to it and making it slightly thicker or whatever I think we'll talk about this more when we get to the iPod Touch, which is one of our topics for today because oh. we didn't, didn't get to it last time. Um, Avi Beckert again sent me a picture of uh, another change on the iPhone 5, or at least on his iPhone 5. Uh, you know the little charger that the iPhone 5 has? You, you have an iPhone 5 now, right? I do, right here. Yeah, and you know the little like white whatever? It's not a wall ward. I guess it is a wall ward. It's, it's the, the two-prong 
charger. I don't know if there's a right, and a it looks one. the same as the 4s one, right? It's a little white square. Has little no, no different. I, I don't believe there's any difference at all. And in fact, I haven't even unboxed the iPhone five when I just started use just plugged right into the the one from the four. Yeah, so he has found a difference. If you look at the link I just put in the chat room here, okay, he's got uh, his iPhone five wall wart next to the iPhone 4 4S wall wart. And you look at that picture. Can you spot the difference there? One looks really old and crappy and the other one looks new. <laughs> they both look kind of old and crappy. Actually. The interior looks like they're uh, of the old. It looks like an old style USB port with the sort of bent aluminum and the, uh, the, the new one, which is on the left and should probably be on the right because you want to go from left to right in chronological order. If you're in a Western country, it has these sort of two little bumps poking through the plastic that are almost like they almost look like little rollers in a way like so the, little ball bearings no so the, the difference is that is this like in the, the show thing, notes uh yes okay the thing that you slot there's a slot for you to put your usb connector into right and on the old one the inside of that slot is made of metal like the it's you know it's like the walls and ceiling and floor of, of that hole are made of this little bent piece of metal and the new one the inside is all plastic except for these two little metal contacts that are poking up yeah, uh, and that, that's, a, that's an interesting change to me because most people say that oh, like they're cheaping out. Uh, that's that's sort of the old you know, our parents' generation philosophy. They they used to have something that was made of metal, and now it's made of plastic, and therefore it's cheaper. But I look at that and I think metal is just another opportunity for something to corrode. You know, you're sliding metal against metal, and uh, you, you know impurities can get in there, and you can get oxidation, and you know who knows what else. The only thing that really needs to be metal are the contacts. So I think this new design is, assuming it's you know sturdy plastic and just as sturdy as, as the metal was before, this is better because metal sliding against plastic, uh, the plastic is less likely to oxidize or have some other strange electrochemical reaction uh, with the metal thing you're sliding into it. And really, you just need the contacts to be there. So I give a thumbs up to this design change. Uh, unless it's really thin, crappy plastic and it cracks easily, and then it's bad. But... Uh, I hadn't seen that in any other reports. So there you go. Can you, are you peeking size yours? I'm assuming yours looks like that. I, I don't know. It's in, you know, it's in the box. Stuck, on the, wall, I don't stuck know on the wall or, you don't. you didn't even take it out. Huh? No, but it didn't. It, the, what we're looking at here, this is not what mine came with. So you didn't get the little, the little, uh, this is the, this is the fat one. I've got the tiny little, little tiny square one that they give you now. This, this is, is for an i. This is for an iPad. You think so? Am I looking at the right? Am I looking at the right image? You only pasted one image. Maybe I could be wrong. I could have mistranscribed it. He could have said this was for his iPad. Okay. This the, here. I mean, this. I have not. Again, I haven't even unboxed the one for the iPad either. I just use the old ones. But these are the fat ones. The the. I gotta get a picture of this thing. He says this is for the iPhone five. The iPhone five is an interesting USB socket on the no, wall. I chart. didn't get this. Hold on, I'm I'm looking for the uh, what do they what do they call that thing? It's not a wall wart. It is a wall wart though, because it, it like the metal prongs that go into the outlet stick right out of the thing, so you, it on. becomes a wart on your wall. All right, I'm going to show you a picture of what came in mine. Hang on, it's a good thing we're you know, this is what people tune in for. Do you think? All right, here <laughs> you we can't go. do that to yourself. You got I'm supposed <laughs> to do it to you. Okay. When you're at this, you here know, you go. You're all confused. That that's what mine came with. Let's see. What do you call that thing? Oh, 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 yeah. Okay. That, it, but, it, and I'm going to show you, it did not come with this. Ignore the URL. It did not come with that. That is what hmm. my iPad came with. 
my iPhone came with a little, the little right. one. Right? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what the, this is. BS. Bobby Beckard, you can you can come in and tell us what's what. But it, the the email says here is it. Here is a much spot. much better picture. That third link I just sent you. That's what that's what came yep, with the yep. iPhone. Nope, that's obviously totally different. And if you look inside that one, do you see? Hang on, I'm going to go get it. All right. All right. Hang on. I'm going to go get it. I'll be right back. Not even going to edit this out, so you entertain them all. Hey, everybody in the chat room. What would you like to talk about? Well, Dan's gone. Yeah, now I gotta wait for the seven second delay for the people in the chat room to see what I just asked and then reply. Everyone's saying the small one is what came with their 4S. <laughs> Lots of votes for paleo diet. Hmm. No, I don't think we're gonna talk about that. Nope. I already did a whole show about journey, so I'm not gonna talk about that. No, we don't have them. We don't have anything. You don't have anything? No, we don't have anything. We got just the old ones. Yes, we have no bananas. Yes, we have no bananas. Well, that was a successful excursion. Yeah. No, we have nobody has anything here. The mystery, <laughs> mystery will remain. Yeah. But I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what. This evening, I will tweet what's, what's inside of the charger. There you go. <laughs> but it, it, that is absolutely not that big thing. Yeah, that, I mean, I think that that makes sense to me. I don't know, but maybe he was confused about, but you know, in his you know, it was the American. I don't know because it maybe he, it's a translation thing. I'm gonna, trying to give him the benefit of the doubt. I think he's American. Okay, all right. And next piece of follow up from comes from someone named Tim Cook. He says. <laughs> <laughs> to our customers. At Apple, we strive to make world-class products that deliver the best experience possible to our customers. With the launch of our new Maps last week, we fell short on this commitment. We are extremely sorry for the frustration this has caused our customers, and we are doing everything we can to make Maps better. So there you have it. Some fellow named Tim Cook, he says, his signs his letter, Tim Cook, Apple CEO. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, he says... Well, we know he's a listener. We know he's a Syracuse yeah. fan. Yeah. He says, sorry about the Maps. We know they're not great. It's a bummer. And now this is this is a t- typical example of good Apple corporate communication. It's like a little screen full of text. It's straightforward. In the first paragraph, it says we are extremely sorry, and not they're not sorry that we're frustrated. We're sorry for the frustration that this has caused. What is this? This is them falling short on their commitment to make the best products. So it's you know it's it's pretty much as direct as you can get we did something wrong we're sorry we're doing everything we can to make it better there's a couple of paragraphs of explanation at the bottom is the the second to last paragraph i think is the most surprising it says uh while we're improving maps you can try alternatives by downloading maps apps from map apps from the app store like bing mapquest waze w-a-z-e yep or use Google or Nokia Maps by going to their websites and creating an icon on your home screen. And then creating an icon on your home screen goes to a help page that tells you how to do that uh, for people who don't know. This is kind of interesting where they're like, they're giving you by name uh, explicit things that you can add. Like they don't, they do, they do link to the app store and they link to how to create an icon on your home screen. They don't link the words Bing, MapQuest, and Waze to their product pages. But this is a pretty big endorsement where when Apple and its corporate communication names your app by name as something that they suggest you use while Apple gets its stuff together. You know, like we know, we know we're kind of in a mess here, uh, but we want you, I guess it's kind of promoting their plan saying, Hey, even if us as the, the platform vendor uh, drops the ball, you do have other options. Uh, of course you can't make those your default maps app and blah, blah, blah. But you know, what do you want? And so this, that I think is the most surprising part of this where they're, 
They're naming names and pointing you to use something else. They're like, we know we messed up. In fact, we know we messed up so bad that you're probably going to want to not use this thing that we shipped until we get our stuff in order. So why don't you try these other apps? You know, and then a little closing paragraph about how everything they do is aimed at making their products the best in the world. Yes, yes, yes. Anyway, that's that's reasonable. You don't need to have an AntennaGate style press conference, I think, uh, because this is straightforward. They ship something. It's not as good as the thing it replaced. They're sorry. They're working on it, right? The AntennaGate thing, I, I actually wrote a, a, a blog thing at uh, ours about this when it happened. That press conference bothered me a lot. Not because I think the antenna issue was some big deal, as many, many people did, and many people wrote me in and say, this antenna thing is the end of the world. Apple is, is deceiving everybody. They need to be sued. The iPhone 4 is, you know, a total failure. It's probably blah, blah, blah. I don't believe any of that. But when they did the AntennaGate press conference, this when Steve Jobs was still alive, he did the whole conference like he was defensive. He's like, fine, you want, you want some bumpers? Here's some bumpers, right? <laughs> right. He, like he was super defensive in, in the thing. And he never directly addressed the issue. And the issue was like he did the explanation of like, look, you know, we can hold all these other phones. They have problems. And it's not just our phone. And this is just something that happens. And blah, 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 blah. And never once, no one asked in the audience. And he never addressed the question that was on. It should have been on everyone's mind, which is, all right, we get all this. We believe everything you say. The question is, did Apple's decision to go with an external antenna make its phone more susceptible to, you know, the interference from hands gripping it? Like, that, like they would not, they wouldn't even entertain the answer. All they said was other phones also have this problem, but it's like, does Apple's phone have it more because the antenna is on the outside? Like, do you take responsibility, Apple, for making the decision to put the antenna on the outside, therefore making your phone more susceptible than a similar phone with the antenna on the inside? And maybe the answer was no. Maybe the answer is no. It doesn't make it more susceptible, but you have to answer it. You have to say, okay, now people may be wondering, our decision to put the, the, the antenna on the outside, does that make our phone more susceptible to this? Well, actually, we tested it, and no, it's not more susceptible. It's exactly as susceptible as all these other phones we tested, or it's average in the range or whatever. They kind of did that in a roundabout way by saying other phones have the same problem, but they, but they never they never talked about their responsibility because they're the ones who decided to put the antenna on the outside where you can touch it with your skin, right? No one made them do that. It's not a, a property inherent in cell phones. It is their phone that they made that had the antenna on the outside. And that killed me that they would never address that, especially since I think the answer probably would have been like our decision to put the antenna on the outside made our our phone slightly more susceptible, but it's still within like the average range. Like there was an answer that did not make Apple look bad. What did make Apple look bad was it dancing around that issue and, and, you know, making like they didn't want to answer, didn't want to address it directly. They only wanted to talk about it in broad terms, right? Uh, So... I think that was a, I mean, and that was, uh, of course, a perfect encapsulation of Steve Jobs' personality because I'm sure he totally thought this was just a, a blown out of proportion. And it yeah. was blown out of proportion, but he got real defensive. Oh, like, yeah. that's, just, that's just his personality. And as we know, as, as it turns out, that issue was not the end of the world. They sold millions of iPhone 4s. People used them. You know, and the actu- world actually, yeah, they actually were able to check their email and make calls. Yeah. Oh, well, you know, if they're on at <laughs> maybe not. But maybe uh, not. <laughs> you know, like... It, the, the thing is, it was such a non-issue, and it, that, that's the problem with this thing. Is uh, my I look at it as a corporate communication issue, not as the actual technical issue, because the actual technical issue was minor, and they fixed it with the the antenna switching and all that stuff. And now we just forget all about it. But anyway, this seems much more direct. They're not hemming and hawing and scurrying. This is saying it's on us. We shipped this thing. It's not as good as we hoped it would be. We're sorry. We're trying to fix it. So thumbs up on Apple. Thumbs up on Tim Cook. Uh, now fix those maps. Do you think it was really Tim Cook that wrote in? Yeah, sure. I mean, 
Uh, I'm sure it's Steve Jobs because he's such a control freak. And I would imagine Tim Cook, like, what else has he got to do all day, right? Right? He can write a five paragraph yeah. thing. <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm, you know, they have people. I'm sure it's massaged and blah, blah, blah. But when you read it and you hear the little soothing Tim Cook voice, it sounds like something he would say, right? No, it totally does. It's totally, I believe it was him. Yeah. All right, let's do our first sponsor. Okay. Harvest. You heard, you heard of these guys, right? I thought it was a command. I was going to go out and, and <laughs> just and begin. Crops. Yeah. Right. These guys, Harvest, they, they make the back office tasks, like things like time tracking, getting time reports and invoicing, all of this stuff. They make it super simple and super easy. Getharvest.com is the URL. Actually, getharvest.com slash five by five is the URL I would like for you to use. But let me tell you about this. You want to you track some time. It doesn't matter if you're doing client work and you have multiple projects or if you are a company with multiple employees. I'll tell you how we use Harvest here. I have people who work here with me. Some of them are full-time. Some of them are part-time. Some of them are hourly. Some of them are contract. doesn't matter. that We all use this. And this is the way that we track time. And it's incredibly useful because I can go and say, okay, how long did it take to produce this show? How long did it take to edit the show? How long did it take to update the CMS? All of those things. And then my own time. I'll put that in there. And I can figure out what the actual cost of doing an episode of a show is. Very interesting stuff. Well, of course, if you're billing clients, you need to know this kind of thing. And you need to be able to show your client, yeah, we worked 100 hours. Well, what'd you do? Ah, oh, we just worked 100 hours. No, they want to see it broken down. And you want to be able to break it down internally for your internal stuff as well. It makes it super easy to do all this. And then you can turn those things into invoices and you invoice your clients right there in the system. Collect payment, multiple payment options. It's great. I love these guys. They've been a longtime sponsor. And, uh, and, and more and more people uh, are writing in to let me know they've tried it and they, they love these guys. You can try it too. Free for 30 days. If you don't fall in love with it, you don't want to switch, just stop using it. The trial expires. You don't give them a credit card. That's it. If you do like it, I think you will. Then you enter the code 5 by 5 and you get 50% off your first month. You get to do it by November 15th, 2012. But uh, go to getharvest.com slash 5 by 5 Doing so will support the show. And uh, signing up uh, will make your business better. So check them out, getharvest.com slash 5 by 5 Sounds like the kind of tool that I would use to find out exactly, uh, to once again confirm that I am working for less than minimum wage when I spend eight bajillion hours doing a Mac OS X review. Yeah, you would definitely be able to use that. I, w- I would I would be afraid of the answer. But if this is your actual business and not something you do for fun, you should know the answer. You need <laughs> to know the answer. Of how, of how much, you know, time and energy you're spending. It reminds me of uh, Merlin's whole big thing about, did he, I think he did a blog post about this. I was going to say he talked about this in the light, recent Back to Work, but I think he actually wrote something on the web. Did you read this about uh, tips for people doing public, uh, doing speaking, like speaking engagement? Merlin they wrote pay this. You? Yeah. You, you know, he has a website. He used to have that. a website. I don't know if he... Yeah. But anyway, this was this. He was actually sending an email to a friend who was asking him, "Hey, I'm thinking of doing speaking engagements. Could you give me some tips?" And he wrote this whole big thing about correctly calculating how much time mm. speaking is actually going to take. Because even though they, th- I mean, he's talked about this on the show. Even though they think it's, a, oh, you're going to give a 20 minute talk, you don't bill it as 20 minutes of your time. That's not how it works. And it doesn't take 20 minutes of your time anyway. And he says for him, it takes three days minimum to do any kind of speaking engagement. Not that he doesn't that much anymore. I would put that in the show notes if I knew the URL, but I'll, I'll try to find it after. Yeah, I'll look for it too. If any in the chat room knows it, they can put it in there. He, yeah, it was on, I think it was on his website. Not 43 folders, maybe mm. merlinman.com. It's hard he, to keep him, his stuff straight. He may have more than one website, I'm suspecting. Maybe. Just maybe. All right. Uh, next bit of follow-up related to maps is a bit anonymous. I don't know why this is anonymous, but I will make it anonymous because they said, please make it anonymous. So here you go. 
bit of follow-up about iOS 6 Maps. He says he lives in Wakefield, Rhode Island, but for some reason, iOS 6 Maps has moved all the businesses in that town to Wakefield, Massachusetts, which is 100 miles away. So if he tries to get direction to the pizza place down the street, it sends him 100 miles away to Wakefield, Massachusetts. Uh, this, this points to something that I've seen speculated about a lot online, which is that it's not so much that Apple has bad data, but it's that taking this data and like integrating it from all the various data sources something may be going wrong there. Like, it's not like this, you know, you don't have the right roads or you're missing a road here. You forgot this road is runway. Here it is, Wakefield, Rhode Island. All the businesses are ending up in Wakefield, Massachusetts. Like, so the business landmarks must be coming from a different place from the roads or whatever, and they're not integrated in the right way. And there must be some kind of matching of like, oh, here are all these Wakefield businesses. Let's put them in a Wakefield, but they get the wrong state. And it's kind of near where, you know. So that's a problem. Uh, and I don't know any more than anyone else does about this, uh, but the more reports that we get of these actual issues make me think that there are problems at every level of this. You know, data doesn't have the right granularity. Data is just wrong or the data is right and it's just mapped to the wrong place. Uh, I don't envy uh, the task Apple has ahead of us. And that leads to the next bit of follow-up from Joe Lyon, who has an awesome name. Uh, he says... <laughs> you would like thinks, it better if it was Joe Mountain Lion. No, just lion is fine. It's king of the jungle. Mountain lion is uh, it's like a puma or something. It's not even a... Anyway, sorry, biologist. I don't remember what family mountain lion's going. So he says that he thinks Apple Maps will never catch up, never in all caps, catch up to the quality coverage and accuracy of Google Maps simply because of the sheer amount of brute force, also in all caps, in man hours and dollars that Google is willing to spend on adding new and better information to their database. Apple has shown that it rarely, if ever, chooses the brute force method and instead tries to solve problems with engineering prowess and cleverness. That is, Apple tends to favor elegant, simple solutions, while Google would be just as happy to pay an army of people to manually solve the problem. And sometimes, simply an army of people can come up with better results than even the smartest, most clever algorithms. This is one of my fears as well with Apple taking over Maps. Like, I understand the reason they did it, and I think Maps, unlike, say, something like Web Search, is finite and bounded. There's only one Earth that has a finite amount of surface on it. You know, like, <laughs> But it's, it's always changing. It, I know, but it's not changing as fast as like the web, for example. You don't need to re-index the entire Earth every 15 minutes, right? You can, you know, you, delays are acceptable there. It takes a long time to build new roads and everything, right? Uh, so it seems like the size of the problem maybe Apple can handle, but they've just never been good at this type of problem. Like they just want to partner with somebody who has already solved it and integrate and everything. But Google is... Uh, you know, Google's willing to do crazy stuff like whatever the book scanning project is. They're like, you know what? If we could OCR scan every book in the world, that would be cool if that was searchable, right? It's like, and in any other company, they'd be like, haha, yeah, that'd be cool, right? Uh, but then Google says, no, let's just pay people to sit there and open a book and put it face down on the scanner, then turn the page and put the book face down on the scanner and turn the page and put the, like, and they just, they just do it. Like the same thing with the street view. It's like, all right, well, well, we need to do that. I guess we need a whole bunch of cars with cameras on the top that are like network connected and just have them drive over every street in the U.S. Okay, and go. Like that type of project doesn't happen at Apple. but And that's a huge advantage that Google has. A, that they're willing to do that and B, that they have done it so far. You know, they've done so much. I think the last thing I read was that Google was like doing underwater stuff just to show off and everything. Like, can you see, picture a project like that happening in Apple? Like Apple decides that street view is important. Yeah. And it decides, okay, we're going to get a fleet of cars, we're going to pay a bunch of people, and we're going to drive all over the entire United States. Like, it's not like they don't have the money, but it's just not in Apple's corporate culture. And I think uh, Joe is right that Apple's culture is like, oh, let's find a clever engineering solution. Or let's find a way to get that data from elsewhere or compute it dynamically or integrate these five data sources. And then you have that 
One of the interesting ideas I saw. Merlin is just, <laughs> this is from a while ago, but somebody just put it in the chat room. He says, you're dead to me, Dan, dead. But I thought it was in reference to this, but it, it wasn't. I'm sorry to interrupt you. There's so many reasons he could be saying that. Too, <laughs> I know. So really, it's hard, it's to, hard, it's hard to, know. to pin it down on something in particular. <laughs> anyway, please continue. I thought you would appreciate yeah. it. So the, the most recent fun theory I saw, which I, I think this was just totally made up, but and it would have tremendous privacy implications and probably isn't happening, but it's fun to think about is that the new panorama feature on, on iOS 6 that you can use with your iPhone 5, and I think it works on the 4 and 4S too, right? Uh, the, the panorama image thing. Apple will just collect those, and eventually it will have the equivalent of Street View just from people taking panorama pictures. Which is not true and would not work, but it's a fun thing to think of. But that's, but that's still, even that crazy idea is different than saying, all right, this is the problem we have, and we're going to solve it with brute force by having thousands of people drive thousands of miles and, you know, or, and fix this type of thing. And that costs lots of money and takes lots of time. And it's not the approach that Apple tends to take. And mapping is this type of solution. Uh, Joe goes on that, that uh, people seem to think that Apple has an engineering problem. Like it can be solved with more elegant engineering or reanalyzing the road data or rejiggering the routing algorithms or making their 3D algorithms smarter or collecting real life usage data from users. And he, like myself, uh, also thinks that the amount of data they get from like people trying to correct things is limited. I think I talked about it in the last show. Like, what do you say? You're like, this place is messed up, but you're not there manually drawing the roads with your fingers or something. Somebody has to fix it, like a human being. And if you get millions and millions of people doing that, you still need people to go and fix the data. Um, so he thinks, well, uh, Apple's map engineering may get better. They'll still lag behind because they're unwilling to employ thousands of people to do mundane tasks and blah, blah, blah. And he gave me a link to this article in The Atlantic that I think I had seen and actually instapapered before but hadn't gotten to reading. It's called How Google Builds Its Maps and What It Means for the Future of Everything. And it talks about the links that Apple goes to to do all the mapping stuff that they do. Uh, not Apple, Google rather. And I'm, this is my big fear with the maps. Like I really, like, as I said in the last show, it's clear to me that Apple is committed to making the maps better. They think it's a, something that they have to control and do. And like I said, that they've already got planned out in the future that uh, keynote presentation where they can say our maps weren't great, but we made them better. Now we believe we have the best maps in the world. Uh, but when will that happen? And will they really have the best maps in the world? Because Google's not standing still. I think, and this is a corporate culture thing. Like Apple's corporate culture is work smarter, not harder which is a pretty darn good corporate culture and makes them tons and tons of money and the biggest company in the world, like thumbs up on that thing. But in certain areas, it may be that, you know, Google works smarter and harder. Like they're really smart about how they do their street view stuff and how they integrate input from people and how they do the corrections, but they also work harder. Like it's, it's like a brute force method combined with engineering uh, cleverness. And so far I haven't seen anything except perhaps manufacturing where Apple is willing to go the brute force route. But even in manufacturing, they're willing to make other people, you know, they partner uh, and pay some money up front to build stuff and help, you know, the factories get on their feet and stuff like that. But they don't own that stuff. So uh, this is really the first like sort of Apple can't, Apple can't escape this. Apple can't ignore it or shirk it or think it's not important or whatever like they could with so many other things. Like they can't leave this as a hobby. It's not like Apple TV. It's not like, you know, selling movies and music where they can just wait for the partners to come around. This is a critical, gotta happen, you know, mainline business, our most important product has to be fixed. Everybody knows about it type of thing. Like, there's no getting around this. There's no waffling for years like they've been doing with television and everything like that. They have to do this Maps thing, right? And so this is the first real test of their corporate culture. I guess iCloud was kind of another one because they had to have some online thing. And But they, it wasn't on such a tight timeline. Like, 
everyone know Mobile Me stunk and the iCloud came out and it's slowly rolling out. It's not that big of a deal. But man, if you buy that phone and the maps are bad, that is a big thing that anybody can see. Whereas iCloud being flaky, I mean, that's also bad, but it's probably not as critical to the average person as the map. So let's check back in a year and see how this all went, because I think this is a real test of Apple's corporate culture. They've shown that they've not been able to turn their culture around to be like a server-focused company to concentrate on the cloud. They're not doing iCloud as well as other cloud-based computing companies are. Uh, Maps is different than cloud stuff. Uh, much more critical, and I think it's something that Apple could do, but it will mean changing their culture to say in their meeting, well, why don't we just hire people to drive all the roads just like Google did? And does someone raise their hand and go, that's not the Apple way, that's crazy, we don't do that type of thing, let's find a clever way to do it, or let's partner with somebody who's already done that, or we can't afford to do that, or I don't know how those meetings go, but it's like, you have $100 billion, what are you saving it for? If maps are important, you should be spending more money than Google on maps. Like, that's what it comes down to. How much money has Google spent on maps from the day they started doing it until now, yeah. Apple needs to spend that much money. You want to? You're not. You know. You say, "Oh, we, we're going to have better maps than Google, but we're going to spend less money." Maybe, but unless someone has an awesome, brilliant idea to make that happen, and so far, apparently, they haven't. For however many years they've been working on the iOS six maps with all those acquisitions, I, I don't envy the task ahead of them. But it, they've. This is the path they've chosen for themselves. But they, in a way, they, it's not like they had a choice. It's not like they couldn't have chosen this path. Really. Well, they, their choice would have been, you know, and again, in the week since we did the last show, there have been more stories about what actually happened between them. And it looks like it's not any one party to blame entirely. It's just they couldn't come to an agreement. We don't know the details, but we can imagine what they are. Like, we can, we can imagine with some confidence that what Apple wanted was vector maps and, and turn-by-turn directions. Those are the things they didn't have. I'm sure that's what they wanted, right? So we know what Apple's demands are. And then Google's demands, we can imagine with slightly less certainty, but we can imagine what Google wanted is what they always want. More information from users, the ability to show more ads, like all the stuff that Google wants. And those, they just couldn't come to an agreement, I guess. And so Apple had to go off on its own, right? Uh, if you know, if Matt, Apple had made a different decision, if they had caved and said, okay, Google, you can have more prominent branding, you can have uh, better access to our user information, you can show your ads, you can integrate it with Google Latitude or whatever your most you know branded location-based thing is, then iOS users would currently have better maps than they do. But Apple chose not to compromise in that way. And they said, no, we want to keep our maps pure. We don't want to have ads. We don't want to give our competitor access to our users and more information. So it's not like they didn't have a choice. They had a choice, but they, they chose based on their, their, their corporate values of user experience, which I think that's, that's a good value to have. And that decision is fine, but now you're on the hook to make your own maps. And Apple has not succeeded. Tim Cook says, we're sorry. We decided to make our own maps. He doesn't go into, it's interesting that he doesn't go into like, oh, the reason we're making, like, what he doesn't even address why are we making our own maps? Uh, like all that, all that background stuff of like, well, Google wasn't giving us the good stuff and we tried to renegotiate for the good stuff, but we couldn't agree. You know, like, you know, we couldn't come to an agreement. Therefore, we had to do our own maps. Apple just says we want to make the best maps. We didn't. We're sorry, which I think is sufficient. Uh, but it's not like Apple didn't have a choice. They just made a choice, Yeah, you know, based on. What they always make choices on, which is fine, but now you're on the hook to do great maps. So I'll be watching to see how they do. I really hope I see, uh, I guess data center is another place where they kind of brute forced it, like they did that humongo data center. But even that stuff, like those groups, the people who do the, the data centers and the server side stuff and the people who are responsible for maps, don't you feel like, you know, the people who actually work on iOS 
like you know, turn their nose up to them when they walk by them in the no, cafeteria. No, they know those guys are there. You know, they're keeping them going. It just, especially when Jobs was there, because Jobs, according to all the, 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 the stories and the books and everything, was like, you know, buddy-buddy with Ive and was all about the hardware product. And he liked the awesome software and want to see what the software people are doing. But do you think, uh, you know, Steve Jobs was hanging out with server-side people? He only had to, saw them when they screwed up. And if they weren't screwing up fine, he didn't want to like, oh, take me through a tour of your data centers and how we make... Maybe, maybe I'm wrong about this. It's hard, so hard to tell from the outside. But from the outside, it's so clear that, that, that Apple's culture technological and corporate culture is very different from Google's uh, when it comes to focus on things like uh, well, yeah, I mean, but cloud computing and manpower. It's weird because you could argue or you could say that, you know, Google's expertise has always been data and the total lack of user experience attention until very recently. And Apple, you could have said, was the opposite of that and that they've always focused tremendously on the user experience and on the user experience being great and maybe less on things like data. I mean, I don't think ping is a, a, a good thing to point to here, but it is an example of them sort of being in an area outside of their deep level of expertise. And here you have a situation where Google is winning because of their data. Google is winning because they have this incredible volume of data that's been entered in. It's been you know, users have helped create this over the years. And now this is a situation where Apple's weakness in this area has become very, unfortunately, very visible. Yes, I'm just trying to look up the link to the previous episode. It's the everybody wants to rule the world phenomenon where I bemoan the fact that it's so clear to to us what the strengths and weaknesses of these companies are. And for that brief moment when they were working together to complement each other's strengths and weaknesses... Google data, Google search, Apple UI, Apple hardware. Like that, those were the golden years. But now everyone's got to split off on their own and wants to do everything. So Apple's like, no, we, we have to control maps. I mean, that, that split was kind of inevitable because of the, the, the difference in philosophy between the two companies and business model and like, you know, just everything. Like it, it's, it's like a marriage doomed to fail. You knew it was, was going to fail, but, you know, the wedding pictures were real nice and the honeymoon was good, right? Uh, it, it gets back to people... Uh, asking, you know, I said, well, Apple's not going to go do search. We're like, why, why wouldn't Apple do search? You know, why, why don't, why don't they buy DuckDuckGo? Uh, why doesn't Apple uh, pull a Bing and compete with Google in search? I mean, right. that's, that, that, that if you had to think of something that Apple was least able to do successfully, it would be make a search engine, right? I mean, ping is like social and obviously they're terrible at that and that, that didn't work and they don't understand it, right? But this, search engine is like the, the hardest big data problem in the entire world and you know if your whole company isn't built around it's not like you can have a side project put 10 guys on it make somebody compete with google and report back in a year or two years or three years it's, you know just ask microsoft how hard it is it is not easy uh and i would not recommend they do that so apple's just gotta find a, you know apple can't do everything they have to find a way to work with others and that's why i tweeted earlier this week that Apple's philosophy, you know, Apple doing maps and everything is like, the, it's so clear that they want to be in control of their own destiny, but there are dangers inherent in that, uh, of being in control of your own destiny. And the bottom line is Apple can't do everything itself. It has to partner with someone about some things. Even the biggest company in the world can't do everything. It can't be good at everything. Can't have seven different corporate cultures, each uh, disciplined and focused on one particular thing. So it's got to figure out a way to, to work this out. Like, 
Not that I'm saying they should abandon their maps thing, but at a certain point, if a year goes by and this map situation is still bad, people are going to be like, all right, Apple and Google, kiss and make up. Surely you two crazy kids can, you know, can work something out, right? Because maybe Android phones are still annoying and people don't like them and they have their own set of problems. So people are like, I, you know what I want? I just want an iPhone, but I want it to be able to make calls. So I want it to be on Verizon and I want it to have Google Maps because they're the best maps. And we got the Verizon iPhone, but then we lost the Google Maps, right? So maybe the, the, the honeymoon period ended when we, as soon as we lost one of those three things, we got an iPhone that can make calls in the U.S. Uh, actually, we lost it because we didn't get LTE. As soon as we get LTE, we lost the maps. Uh, can't can't so I, have it all. Yeah, I think Apple can come back from this, and I think they can. There's no there's no reason that they can't do exactly what Google did. If they want to do it smarter and cheaper, fine, good on them, go nuts. But if they can't do it smarter and cheaper, just do exactly what Google did. Just spend some of your money. If this is such a critically important thing, you've got $100 billion, spend some of it. And do, you know, and do, and do the brute force method and it'll still take them years to catch up and Google will keep advancing, but you got to do what you got to do. Uh, so the final bit on maps from Matt McClure, he says, how hard would it be for Apple to run a script comparing the data in their maps to Google Maps? Like basically just diff Apple's maps against Google Maps. That's such a dangerous situation because, you know, Apple can do whatever it wants internally, but at the point where, it, you know, it diffs those things and then says, you know what we can also do? Wherever we find differences, we can just automatically make our maps match Google's. And like at that point, you're copying Apple, uh, Google's map data and then you're just going to get sued and there's some legal thing going on or whatever. So you, internally, you can use it as a QA tool, but all you can really do is flag cases where there are differences and then have a human look at them. If you automate the entire process, all you're doing is really copying Google, Google's map data. And I'm pretty darn sure that copying Google's map data is illegal and you'll get you into hot water. So first of all, it's clear that Apple didn't do this because their maps differ wildly from Google's in very bad ways. And second, I would suggest that it's probably not a good idea to do this because it's a very short leap from simply using it for purposes of QA, which may or may not be legal, and copying map data. They just got to do it themselves. No way around it. They will, though. Jim, Jim Dalrymple. Well, no, I'm, I'm a little more confident because Jim Dalrymple kind of boosted my confidence on the Wednesday's episode of Amplified. He kind of... Uh, he made me feel a little bit better about it. I mean, if there's one thing that Apple has shown that they're good at as a company, it's reacting to a problem. Like when something comes up and it is a problem and it gets to the point where the CEO is writing an apology letter, like all hands on deck, everyone's going nuts. We're going to really fix the maps problem. But I, I don't doubt their resolve to do so. What I doubt, what I doubt is their their ability to do so like that, that same resolve was there for iCloud. For example, this mold me thing is a mess. We totally need to have a, a, a cloud, you know, online network based strategy that does not like mobile me because it's not competitive at all. We need to make a good one. And so they came up with iCloud, which was a really big effort and an ongoing effort. But the reality is like, it's better than mobile me, but it's not as reliable as Google stuff and still flaky. And there are problems all tied up with the, you know, the app store and sandboxing and the iCloud APIs. Like it's, they really put a big effort into it and their results are like, meh, so far anyway. You know, maybe Maps is an easier problem than cloud computing, at least as far as Apple's concerned. We'll see. They'll get it right. And by the way, uh, Merlin has tweeted us the link is entitled Speaking for Yourself. And uh, that is in the show notes. Why is he listening to the show but not in the chat room? 
Like it's like you're, he, can't, you're, he can't do like two different things at one time. He can't uh, listen and type or, or read at the same time. But he's wasting his time by listening to the show. Well, not wasting maybe, but I'm just saying like he could be doing other things. He's chosen to invest his time in the show, but not to the degree that he wants to be in the chat room where he, he can doesn't com- communicate more. Efficiently. Yeah, he doesn't really work in the same way that other people do. And I don't mean like he doesn't have a job work. I mean like his, the way his mind works and he, this is, this is his fuel. This show with you on it is his fuel. He'll be 10 times more productive later today because he's heard, he's heard you and he likes the live experience. All right. Second sponsor is Gazelle. It's the fast and simple way to sell your iPhones, MacBooks, other smartphones. You just get an iPhone. You're wondering what to do with your old one or an iPod touch or really any smartphone or, or an old computer. Even if your phone is broken, they will buy it. They will buy it. So you go to gazelle.com, G-A-Z-E-L-L-E.com. You go there, you, t- you pick the device that you have that you want to sell from their list. You tell them the condition. Like I said, they'll even buy a broken one. And you get a risk-free offer. And it locks in the price for 30 days. So anytime the next 30 days, you send it. By the way, they pay for shipping. <laughs> and then they send you money. They send you a check or they'll PayPal it to you. There's no risk. It's not like you are you know, selling it to somebody on uh, eBay or Craigslist or something like that, which it's a fine way to sell things, but there's no risk with Gazelle. They give you a price and that's how much money you're going to get. They, they pay for shipping. They pay for everything. And uh, I've used these guys. They've been using them for a long time now. They've paid $50 million to over 300,000 customers. And uh, if you're just curious what your phone is worth, go there, gazelle.com and find out. Great new sponsor. Check them out. I will be using them to get rid of my old phones. You should check it out too. John, you should do this too and get yourself some new iPod Touches. Gazelle.com. I wish I could sell my car like that. Maybe they'll like, expand like, to cars. Like why, does people... it, why does it only work for like computer hardware? Why can't you do it? How do you ship a hassle. car though? Well, you'd have to have someone come and drive it away, right? But yeah, you can't ship it, so I guess that's one problem. But like they're they're doing it sight unseen. You tell them what you have, you tell them it works, like it turns on, it works fine. There's nothing broken about it. They tell you, okay, we'll pay that much for that, and they just give you the money. Like they give it to you before you ship it, don't you? Don't I had I had my car appraised yesterday. Yeah, I saw you in the dealer there. And came in came in way higher than I was hoping. What you getting rid of the pilot? Yeah. All right, we'll talk about that. In the yeah, afternoon. we didn't do that in the afternoon. Yeah, I haven't driven an A4 in a while. My dad had an A4 a while back. But my father hung me on a hook once. Once. <laughs> I don't, I don't know that one. Was it Johnny Dangerously? Johnny Dangerously. Very good. All right. I, I got it. I'm, I'm, I'm catching up. All right. iPod Touch. IPT. In our, in our continuing tour of hardware that I have never touched. Yeah. <laughs> the iPod or seen right. in person. But <laughs> your, I seen. your detailed review of a product you have no actual experience with. Well, well what we have is high-res pictures here. Let me, let me go to the... Are iPod. they real pictures or are they renderings? Well, you know, whatever. Same thing. <laughs> Close enough. I think a lot of these look like they're illustrator renders. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, as people know who listen to the show for a while, I don't have an iPhone. I use iPod Touches for my handheld iOS needs, uh, which works out for me because I use it at home and I use it at work, both of which have Wi-Fi and uh, I survive. Um, and so I've been frustrated by the fact that the iPod Touch is never quite the iPhone without a phone that is often described as. Like, uh, you know, you don't want to get an iPhone. Oh, don't you just get the iPod Touch. It's like an iPhone, but it just doesn't have the phone part. That is not the case and hasn't been the case for many years. Uh, unfortunately, I remember 
the brief moment in time when the iPod Touch was actually the fastest iOS device you could buy. What? When was that? All right, so I had to look this up on Wikipedia to make sure I'm not crazy. I'm not crazy. This actually happened. The iPhone 3G came out in July of 2008, and it had a 412 megahertz uh, ARM 1176J7F-S processor. They didn't have nice names like A5 and A8 then, right? Uh, the iPod Touch 2nd Gen came out in September of 2008, and it had a 533 megahertz uh, version of the same processor. So there July... The 3G comes out and it's 412 megahertz in September. The iPod Touch comes out and it's 533. So it had a faster clock speed, basically. It was the fastest iOS device you could buy. If you bought the most expensive iPhone you could get in September 2008, it would have been an iPhone 3G and its CPU would have been 412 megahertz. And the iPod Touch had the exact same CPU at 533. So there you go. And I had that iPod Touch, still do it, sitting in this room back in the corner there. 533 megahertz, fastest iOS device you can buy. And it wasn't beaten until June of 2009 summer of the next year when the iPhone 3GS came out with a 600 megahertz uh, ARM Cortex A8. Not the Apple A8, the Cortex A8. It's so, so confusing, I know. Uh, but anyway, so from that period of time, from September 2008 to June 2009, the iPod Touch was the fastest iOS device you could buy. It played games better, it had better frame. Like it, it actually was an appreciable difference, uh, especially in games where they were like pushing the limits of what the iPhone 3G could do. The iPod Touch was like a little bit smoother, less glitchy. Uh, but even then, the insides weren't exactly the same. Like, it didn't even have a microphone or a speaker. If you believe it or not, that, that iPod <laughs> Touch did not have... It had, like, the PC speaker. That's one thing I know about the PC. They had what they called the PC speaker, which blew my mind because my first computer I had, you know, I had a VIC-20 and then went right to the original Mac, right? And the original Mac had a proper speaker and you could play Sounds of the Simpsons and, you know, various other things. And they sounded like regular sound. But the PC had an audio system that could just make bleeps and boops and terrible staticky... People in the Lynx, was Lynx the golf game that tried to make speech through that horrible PC speaker with the static? <laughs> would go, I, was, I think I, I remember the one you're talking It was about. like, yeah, you have hit the ball. And I can't do this. It's like, <laughs> it was just told, it, it would make speech by, by making noise from the PC speaker. It was hideous. Anyway, uh, that's what the iPod Touch has. It could go, but you couldn't play music, uh, sound for video, anything like that. Uh, it didn't have a microphone. It didn't have a camera. It was, you know, a pale shadow of the, of the iPhone, but at least the innards were the same. Well, it, since then, the iPhone has always been ahead. It's had a better CPU. It's had more RAM. Uh, the iPod Touch eventually got a camera, but the but it was always a cruddy camera. Eventually, the iPod Touch got a microphone and, and a speaker, but they're not as good as you know. It was always the iPhone was always better. And whenever I complain about this, a hundred people send me replies. Yes, we all know why this is the case. It's because the iPhone is subsidized. You're not paying the price for the iPhone. You're buying the iPhone and then you're signing up for a two-year contract. If you buy an unsubsidized iPhone, it's like 900 bucks or whatever. And the iPod Touch has to cost $200 or, you know, now it's a little bit more. Of course, the iPod Touch has to be credier at that price point. Uh, so I understand all the reasons for this. And I've always said that I'd be willing to pay more for an iPod Touch that has specs that are closer to the iPhone. And I've always been disappointed because I don't want to pay $2,000 over two years for a contract for my iPhone, right? I, I, I just want to pay a couple hundred bucks for the iPod Touch and use it for a couple of years. No contracts, no nothing. All right, so even though there are logical reasons for the iPod Touch to be the way it is, it's always disappointed me uh, because I don't have an iPhone and I'm not, not into that quite yet. So the current iPod Touch, the new one that Apple just announced, actually moves a little bit in my direction. First of all, they increased the price. There is no $200 model anymore. Like the cheapest one you can get is $250, which is not a big increase, but it shows that like, all right, 
uh, it's not it's not eight hundred dollars. It's not an iPhone without a phone. Uh, but let's crank up the, the price a little bit so we can make this thing a little bit better. Uh, one of the big places they made it better was they gave it the same screen as the iPhone. Uh, they, in the past, they've you know w- when the iPhone went Retina, sort of the iPod Touch, but it wasn't the same screen. It was like it was the same resolution, the same size, but not uh, the screen was not as expensive. The color saturation wasn't as good. The viewing angles weren't as good, and it just wasn't as nice a screen. Well, this according to all reports, has the exact physical same screen as the iPhone 5, which everyone says the iPhone 5 screen looks awesome, so I assume that the iPod Touch screen will look awesome. So big thumbs up there. You know, it's the taller screen, obviously, but it's the exact same panel. It has all the great characteristics of the the iPhone thing. I think that's probably where most of the money went and why this thing is more expensive than the previous model because that component uh, cannot be cheap. And so, hey, extra, extra 50 bucks. And I think that, like, maybe they should have also continued to make a $200 model. I know they're still selling the old one for the cheaper price, but maybe for the people who don't care about the screen, they could have got away with a cheaper one, but economies of scale is probably a good idea to just go with the same screen everywhere. So thumbs up in that. It's got an A5 CPU, presumably the 32 nanometer version that debuted in the revised iPad 2. Instead of having an A6, you can kind of understand that. They're they're selling every single iPhone 5 they can make that you don't want to pull off some of your A6 supply into your much less profitable product, the iPod Touch. It would have made this product much more expensive than it is. That would have been, you know, another increase in, in cost and they're already increasing it for the screen. But, you know, an A5, it's it's better than what I've got now in my many, many year old previous generation iPod Touch, which they didn't, they didn't revise for like two years. I think it's just an old A4 in here. Uh, so I give a thumbs up to the A5 being in here. Camera is not quite as good as the iPhone's 8-megapixel camera. This is just a 5-megapixel camera, but that's way better than the camera that's currently in my iPod Touch, so that's an upgrade as well. Siri support is a nice, you know, they used to do things where like, oh, well, the hardware can handle it, but we just decided not to bring that feature of the iPod Touch. Well, Siri now is supported on the iPod Touch, uh, which means it must have a microphone good enough to support it and all that stuff. I'm assuming that the iPod Touch has less RAM than the iPhone, simply because, like, you know, they've got to save money somewhere. And so the iPhone 5 is one gig of RAM. I'm hoping this iPod Touch has 512. I'm assuming it does. Maybe the previous one has 512. But anyway, I'm assuming it doesn't have a gig of RAM. If it does, I will be very pleasantly surprised. Uh, The physical design of this thing, again, having not seen one in person, but I've read all the reports that, you know, so the iPhone 5 is thin, and people are like, oh my God, this is so thin, it's so light. The iPod Touch is even thinner and lighter. And that, that always amazes people who our iPhone users and I show them my iPod touch and they, they forget how thin these things are because they don't have to put all of the phone innards in there. These things can be really, really thin. And the, in, the most interesting thing I think about this iPhone, uh, the, this new iPod touch design is not the fact that it comes in colors. We'll talk about it in a second, but it's that they made it so thin that they couldn't fit the camera in the thickness of the case that they made. If you go to Apple's website on the, uh, their iPod Touch page, which is in the show notes, but you should be able to find it yourself, and look at the side view sort of profile of the device showing you how thin it is, the camera sticks out a couple of millimeters. Like there's a smooth, flat back. It's just a complete flat surface. And then all of a sudden, there's like a little rectangular bump out for the camera. Because this 5 megapixel camera, you know, it was a packaging consideration, I'm assuming. Like there's, there's just not enough vertical space inside this thing to fit that, that camera. Uh, and this is interesting to me because it reinforces the notion of this thing being the naked robotic core of the device. Because think about it. So they're giving you this slippery little metal thing that's very thin, as thin as they could possibly make it. 
But one part of it, they couldn't quite make uh, as uh, thin as they wanted. And so it sticks out. That actually, I think, is a good thing from my perspective, because I'm going to buy this thing and I'm going to buy a case that is silicone rubber that coats the entire back of this device. And the camera will poke out through it. So when I'm done, I'm hoping that the surface of the camera will be flush with the case that I'm putting on it. And that will actually also serve to anchor the case so it doesn't slide around. Because if you make a very precise cutout for that circular camera and the camera pokes through it, that makes it so the case doesn't slide anywhere. Uh, Maybe they won't be that precise. Maybe it'll just be a cutout on the other side. They have to leave room for the flash and and what I assume is the microphone or light sensor or whatever that other thing is next to it. Uh, But this is exactly what I'm looking for. If you're going to make the naked robotic core of the device, make it with, with the idea that the things that poke out of it will be flush with the finished surface. It's sort of the fit, you know, it's like when you do uh, reconstruction at work at home, where you you know you do a bunch of stuff and it looks like things are all way too high, it's because they're that's all going to be level with the finished surface of the floor, but the finished surface of the floor isn't there yet. Well, so the camera is flush with the finished surface of this iPod Touch once I put a case on it. For people who don't have cases, well, you know, I'm sure they didn't make it poke out on purpose; they just couldn't fit it, and so they decided that it's better to have the entire device be super thin. Then to as someone in the chat room suggested, why not make why not just make the battery two millimeters thicker and give you like an extra thirty minutes of battery life or something on it? Why not just do that? Why why do you have to make it so thin, so thin that you can't even fit your camera in it? Uh, that would be a different trade off. But Apple just goes you know as thin as possible to the point where they say even thinner than possible. We can't, <laughs> it's not possible to make this thinner because the camera is too big. We'll get you know what we're making it thinner anyway, and I think they can get away with that because of the naked robotic core concept of their designs, whether it's in their heads or not. I think that's a good move, and I think it's being true to the philosophy that they've you know used for their handheld devices. We'll see if they regret it. Like maybe that thing pokes out and it ends up like catching on things or cracking and they have to make it flush next time. Or as soon as they can make it flush, I assume they would make it flush. It's not like they're going to leave it sticking out for my benefit, but uh, I give that a thumbs up. <laughs> you approve of that. Yeah. The wrist strap. That's an interesting That's one. a weird one. I can't really see you using that. Like, so the question everyone had is why, why does this have a wrist strap and the iPhone doesn't? Your you're, at, you're asking me why. I'm, ask, I'm asking you. Why do you think? Why is it? Because it's for kids. Touch? It's for little kids. Kids need uh, help so they don't drop the electronics. See, this is a case where only Apple knows the answer because the, to, to figure out the, the value of that theory is, is the iPod Touch dropped more often than the iPhone? And who knows that? Well, Wait, of course it is because people. kids have it. They hold it. Kids drop things. That's That sounds good in theory, but I don't, you know... I think there are other aspects that I can think about, like who is more likely to be walking over a surface that will cause a crack while using their device? Like people using their phone are more likely to be on the go using their device than a kid. I always picture them sitting on a couch or something like they're not running down the sidewalk with their iPod touch. They're they're stationary or in some place with the soft surface, whereas people with iPhones are using it all day during work and the commute and stuff like that. And it seems more likely that they would drop them there. Now, kids obviously are less responsible and maybe they like leave them on the couch and you sit on them and stuff like that. But I could go either way on that. I'd have to see numbers. I'd have to see Apple's repair numbers of, you know, percentage of iPod touches sold that come back due to with damage due to, you know, user neglect, not even whether it was done by a kid or not. Uh, But yeah, I mean, that's, that's the best theory I've heard is that the wrist strap is there because the iPod touch is marketed to a younger audience. That's why they come in colors and stuff like that. And it's cheaper and you're more likely to give one to a kid and maybe this will help the kid not drop it. Of course, the real problem is 
getting the kid to put on the wrist strap. Because anyone with a Wii knows you got to be on top of them about keeping the wrist strap on there because if left to their own devices, they will just forget and it's not that important to them to have the wrist strap on. I, I trained my son very well to put the wrist strap on, but occasionally still when I come in, I'll see him flipping that thing around. And you can tell because you can hear the little plastic nubbin in the middle of the wrist strap whacking against things. You know, it should be should not be flying around when he's waving his hand around. Kids forget. So I don't know if they'll use the wrist strap, but it's interesting they devoted not just like it comes with the strap. It's not it's not like a a thing you have to buy after the fact for $30 or whatever. It comes with the wrist strap. The wrist strap is color matched to the thing. And they dedicated part of this design to this little flush metal uh, knob that you, you push in and it pops up again, popping up proud of the surface. And that's where you put the wrist strap on. It's, it's like a, it's a mechanical thing, a mechanical feature of the device dedicated solely to not marring the surface when you're not using the wrist strap. So they want it to be beautiful and flush uh, they didn't want to put like a loop on it or a hook or whatever that would be there when you didn't have the thing. So instead they have this little pop-up thing. I, I really want to play with one of those and see what that's like and what its odds of are, are, are of maintaining its functionality in the face of sand and dust and other things that might uh, get into that area. But, you know, this this is like one of those experiments like where they, you know, take the buttons off the shuffle or make the fat nano or something. And you're like, hmm, uh, I guess they'll put this is like putting feelers out for the whole wrist strap idea. But if this is gangbusters and people love it, can you ever imagine them selling like an iPhone 6 with a wrist strap? No way. The wrist wrist straps are for kids. Like, does it imply uh, decreased faculties or lowered responsibility? Like, like lowered expectations. Yeah. Like, you know, okay, guys, well, we know you're a klutz. So these are going to come. The new iPhone 6 comes with the wrist strap because iPhone 6 users cannot keep their hands on their things. Yeah. It's kind of like embarrassing. I mean, I, I assume I will not use it. But I, I'll probably get one of these iPods. I'd like for you to try it and, and report back. Well, like how, how does that, I'm not, how does that manifest itself? Like I, I pick it up off the table and I use it and I put it back down. Do I pick it up off the table and put the, put the wrist strap on and then use it to check Twitter and then take the wrist strap off? I don't even think I could do that. I don't, it would definitely sense. eliminate your concern about it spontaneously sliding off the table though. Oh, but, you know, my, my concerns about, like, putting it on the arm of the couch and stuff, I don't have the wrist drop on. I'm putting no, it No, I think you would put it on, you'd keep it on. You just let it dangle? Yeah. yeah that's terrible. <laughs> at all, at all times, it's on. Yeah. I'm, I'm watching this one. And the colors... Yeah, the keep colors your eye thing, on this one. <laughs> yeah. The, the colors, I'm... I don't like this phase <laughs> in Apple's color choices. It's kind of like the, the PS2 ports that we talked about earlier. These sort of washed-out pastel colors... Maybe that's like in fashion or maybe it's part of their current theme. But compared to the the time when Apple was making colored hardware and actually, you know, making waves as being one of the first companies to start in- integrating fashion sense into their hardware. Uh, do you remember the uh, Lifesaver IMAX? Lifesaver. Uh, well, that was the code name rather referred to. Oh, you know, that, that line know, of they, the, they, yeah. They, they yeah. come in colors with all the ads. Yeah. It's not, it's not easy being green, perhaps my favorite <laughs> Apple commercial ever. <laughs> yeah. I love it. Jim Henson and Kermit and yeah. showing a green computer and they had, you know, they had the one with the cream song for the white one. Those colors were so much more bold. The, the initial line of colors of like the, the you know, Lifesaver red or the, uh, the emerald green or the, you know, those were just saturated, bold colors. These are like kind of like silver with like a red tint like put, put it this way can you imagine are you looking at these colors now here the colored ipod touches yeah can you imagine a car coming in any of these colors and not looking hideous except for the black 
even the black though is kind of not great but like that red like no sports car would ever be that red it's practically salmon it would just look terrible and the yellow i mean maybe a volkswagen beetle but even then it's just sort of a tepid kind of like diluted lemonade piss yellow it's not good and that blue like it's not even a bold teal that you'd want like a miata convertible or something invert for it's just none of these colors are that strike me as colors that i want on my thing and it's it's just driving me and probably a lot of other people to just get the black if the black is not the, the best seller in this thing i will be shocked because those other colors like even the minis and stuff like that i think Again, may, I know nothing about fashion, so maybe I'm wrong and maybe these colors are totally in now and people will love them and their best-selling model will be like the pinkish. It's not even pink, the reddish one because people will think it's pink. But um, if I get one of these, it's going to be black. Like, not, Well, I, you don't have a choice now. Yeah. It's got to I mean, be black. Are you serious? Like, can you just... People say the yellow is the worst. I actually think at least the yellow is the most like yellow because yellow itself is kind of a bright color. I think that the red is the worst. Like, I like red. My wife has a red Nano, like the product red thing. We always get those red, because they used to be such a deep, rich, like, blood red. And, you know, sort of aluminum, sparkly red. That was good. This is not good. So, thumbs down on the colors. I like the idea that there are colors. I don't like the colors they picked. Same thing with the shuffles. Shuffles have always been hard to find a good color, because they started to get pale and gross-looking. And just, I want to return to saturated colors, or maybe just a dark color theme. But, again, I'm probably completely wrong about what colors appeal to people because i have not heard complaints about these colors from a lot of people and i think people just go into the store and say well i'll pick that one i'll pick the blue one i'll pick the green one whatever and they're fine they don't care that that blue is not a very strong blue and the lumia is as the counter example lumia is going with not just saturated color but also kind of like the lumias remind me of the 90s again remember when everything was fluorescent <laughs> yeah that's coming okay. back that's back now i don't know if that's back. no i'm, yeah, I'm being told that it's back right now Who's telling you that it's back? Patty's telling me that. I don't, I don't know. I don't. Fluorescent colors are back. I, I plead complete ignorance. That could be the case. Also, I you can wear, you can wear jeans, uh, shirts now again and skinny ties. Remember the kind of skinny ties you used to have? I, I, the I little, do remember skinny ties. The little mesh, like the mesh woven. Yeah. You remember those with the straight bottom? That's back now. Did you save yours? I believe I never had one with a straight bottom, but I did have skinny ties. Yeah, I don't, I, I, I don't have any of them anymore. And apparently, if I'd saved them, I would be at the height of fashion. But High ending in the chat room lulls me and he says, are you asking them to go back to colors from 10 years ago? 100% red is not a color from 10 years ago. 100% red <laughs> below, like it's not a fashion color. It's the opposite of a fashion color. It's just, it's just red. Like just turn on the red pixels on your screen. That's called red. And it may be fashion that those colors get used a lot, but it's not like it's not like fluorescence where it's a it's distinctive, it's interesting, it's different, and it marks you as a period of time. Just hundred percent like a Ferraris. Ferraris have been there have been many different shades of Ferrari red, but all of them are clearly recognizable as Ferrari red. There's a there's sort of a universality of the theme of red sports car. Mm. Uh, and what you get are the fads in between of like the teal things and everyone's into silver or matte black was a trend in sports cars for a while. Yeah. Like those are the fads, but Ferrari red will never go out of style. Never. And I'm, I've I've also uh, had he's corrected me. Fluorescents are are height of fashion in Europe. Yeah. Okay. And it's anyway, I know this colors. is this is what our audience tunes in for. Their colors. So they're, they're not their colors. It's a universal color. Red. Hundred percent. Hundred percent red. There are many different 
reds for Ferraris, but all of would them you are get red a red one though, John? You wouldn't get a red iPod Touch. Oh hell yes, I would get. A you red would get a red. Can this you is, get this, that Project yeah. Red or or whatever that thing is? Don't they make? Oh, that? I thought you mean a, I meant a Ferrari. <laughs> oh, of course, a Ferrari would be red. I mean, come on, obviously. Yeah, I, no, I, I I'm talking about the iPod Touch. I don't look down on anybody who buys a different color Ferrari because Ferraris do look good in many different colors. Yeah. But if you get one chance to buy a Ferrari, as far as I'm concerned, I'm getting a red. Because what cars can you get in red and not be like... It has to be a Ferrari. Like, if you get a Corvette in red, it's like, meh. And if you get some other sports car in red, it's like, meh. But if you get a Ferrari, that's the one car you can get in red and not be ashamed. You're like, it's a Ferrari. It's, it's coming in red. Uh, but no, the iPod Touch, I gotta get the black. And I'm gonna put a case on it anyway. I'm not even gonna see this, which is all the more reason why it should be, you know... Black is kind of like the, the background color. All right, I got one more one more thing here. We, why don't we do our, do our last sponsor right now? Just drop it in. Okay. MailChimp.com. Easy email newsletters. Longtime sponsor. These guys are great. I mean, I, I used their service years and years and years ago, and they have been, I think, the longest-running 5x5 sponsor that we've ever had. And if you want to do newsletters, this is the only, this is the only place to go. MailChimp. They help you design them. You can use their templates. You can create your own templates. You don't need to know HTML or CSS. Maybe you do. Great. Whatever. They have a solution for you, and they make it super easy to send these things. They even have these really cool tools that will show you what your newsletter is going to look like across pretty much every single like email client in the world. They walk you through creating the text-only versions for, for those people like uh, John who you know, browse mail at the Unix command line. I mean, all of these things are there and they're built in. They have tons and tons of guides that help you create newsletters that are going to be interesting, that are going to be not marked as spam. I mean, all of this is there and they have these really cool analytics that shows you when your, uh, when your newsletter has been opened and by who and how it's being sent out. And they have iOS apps to go along with this stuff. It's just super, super cool. They've thought of everything. They've got ways for you to integrate mail sending into your applications that you're building with their Mandrel service. They've got code that you can just drop into an iOS or an Android app that'll let people sign up for your newsletter right within the app. You name it. And it's still really, really good time to sign up. Why? Because you can send 2,000 emails to 12,000 people for free. And you can do this forever with their free forever plan. Check them out. Support the show. MailChimp.com slash 5 by 5 Thanks very much to MailChimp for making this show possible. As Zudum in the chat room points out that the product red iPod touch still exists and is still in nice saturated 100% red. So uh, you can still get that red one. It does look the way I think red should look. Maybe it doesn't look quite as deep as the old iPod nanos, but it could just be photography. So I'm, I'm relieved to see that. I still wouldn't get mine in red, but if I had to buy one for someone else that didn't like black or didn't like silver, by the way, the, the silver one, I think. Let me click on that. Yeah, the reason you don't get the silver one is because it has the white front. Like, I don't mind the back of the silver iPod touch, but then the front is white, and that's that's no go for me. Uh, the rest of the front of the red one is white as well, which is kind of a shame. It ends up looking like a candy cane instead of uh, something nice. But the back is the true deep red that I wanted. So so there you go. It's not, it's not all terrible, but it's not great either. If you could get that red one with a black front, that might look nice. I might consider that one, but they don't make it. All right, final final bit from Apple's announcement from two weeks ago that we were winding our way through slowly and painfully uh, is the new iPod Nano. And as I mentioned earlier, the iPod Nano has been another sort of playground for Apple where they did the fat Nano. If you lined up all the Nanos from the beginning of time to now, you, the, you would not guess that these were all the same product. 
if they didn't all just share the name because it started off as like kind of tall and vertical. And it's like, that's what an iPod Nano is. It's really skinny, tall and vertical, but then they got fat and then eventually got square with a touchscreen. And it's just like, you know, what is the iPod Nano? It's just the iPod Nano is uh, the pro- the iPod that Apple makes that's this, that's this price point and that is smaller than the ones that is smaller than a classic. Uh, that's basically the only defining characteristic of the now. It's smaller than an iPod Touch, smaller than a classic, and hits like the $150 price point, more or less, up and down from there. Now, looking at this Nano, I have to say, again, not having seen it in person, only looking at photographs, but they're very high-res photographs, and they're Apple's photographs, so I'm assuming they're showing the device in the best possible light. Uh, it looks as if some crappy Asian MP3 player was given to Apple's product photography team. And I said, look, we know this thing is a hideous monstrosity, but we're going to give it to the best product photographers in the world and 3D render people. And so just make it look as good as you can. But this thing does not look Apple-like in any way to me. Yeah. In particular, that volume rocker slit switch looks like it's right from the 80s, right off of a Sony Walkman. Like where it's got the plus and minus and it's a single switch and it's like a little scooped out like... That looks right from the A's. It does not look like an Apple product at all to me. The overall shape of this thing is not distinctive or strong. It is basically like if you looked at it in profile, it's like a, uh, a rectangle with rounded end caps, more or less, and a capsule shaped, right? So that's, that's the profile of this thing. But it is not, that shape is not strongly communicated in the design. Uh, to compare it to the old Nanos, which was similar, it was like a, uh, sort of a, a, a the cross section was exactly the same. It had curved edges and was straight up and down, straight front, straight back. That one was like a single solid pieces of aluminum curved into that shape and extruded, and that was communicated through the whole device. Right, this one has that faceplate, the sort of Lumia-looking faceplate that's sort of a different color and a rounded rectangle inside a square rectangle. Like this is hard to explain without someone looking at it, but if you look at it head on, it's a perfect rectangle with sharp edges inset into that is a white rectangle with curved edges. And it's just, it, it breaks up the design, does not, and that stupid rocker thing on the side, does not say, does not pure to its, uh, you know, true to its form. Like Johnny Ive was always talking about how they were making the, the Sunflower iMac, the one that had the horizontal base shape like a dome, and then like the arm and the thing, like let each piece be true to itself. The, the body of the computer is squat and flat and close to the ground, and the screen is very thin and light and floating in the air. None of these parts of this nano are true to themselves. It's just, this is a kind of, mongrel thing that doesn't say anything to me with its form except for i uh, you know i i'm not an apple product uh, and then the home button the home button with the circular thing on it it also says asian ripoff to me because like so it's got the circle because the shape inside the home button is supposed to reflect the shape of the little icons that you hit on the screen so yeah. on, the, on the iphone it's a rounded rectangle because all the little applications your iphone are little right. rounded rectangles now these are round little circles Right, and so they put a circle in the thing, but it looks for all the world like someone made a bad Asian knockoff of, <laughs> of an Apple product, like, and they just got it slightly wrong. Like, oh, you know, and you put some outline in the middle. Yeah, I think it's a circle. Just go with that, right? That's what it looks like. And same thing with the icons on the screen. It's like, okay, well, we can't do the rounded rectangles. That would look too much like Apple. Let's just do these circle things. And of course, the reason they do these circle things is because this thing is not running iOS, at least as far as I've read anywhere. I'm, sur- I'm sure if it was, I would have read it already. But regardless, even if it was running iOS, it doesn't run iOS applications. It comes with applications. You can't add more to it as far as I know. I'm assuming it's running that proprietary OS that the previous Nano ran. There was, I mean, Maybe it's even derived from that Pixo stuff. Remember the Pixo company that makes Apple's uh, operating systems for its uh, original so what's iPods? What's going on? What's going on there? 
It's that time again. All right. It's not it's not my yard, it's the neighbor's yard, but I don't have that much land, so the neighbors are close to me. Yeah, what can you do? We're almost done here. All right. What's a little leaf blowing between friends? It's a it's a staple of the, uh, like the network, I feel like. I now. like it a lot. Yeah. I never did get to get the sanding and the banging from Marco, but the leaf blowers are universal. Yeah. Yeah. So this is not running iOS. I'm assuming now. And so it has, it can't look like an iOS device and people will buy it and think, Oh, I can put my, my favorite app on there. I can put angry birds on there and they'll get it and realize hey, it doesn't have Wi-Fi or any other network connection to be. No, you can't put your apps on there. Uh, it just has apps that it comes with. So I understand the need to make sure there's no confusion in customers' minds, but it, it looks for all the world like a ripoff of an Apple device that's crappier. And it kind of is because you would like to put apps on there. Like you're going to give this thing a big touch screen, not quite as big as an old iPod touch touch screen, but it's bigger than the little tiny touch screen. And you're going to make me tap on things to launch them and stuff. And you're going to give me a home button. It's like so close. You're so close, right? So the question in my mind is, ignoring the physical design of this, which I'm sure will change in a generation or two, and we'll just all forget about this one like the Fat Nano, right? When does the Nano go iOS? I mean, I'm assuming it goes some iOS point. as soon as they're able to make a $150 device that runs iOS. But going iOS means all sorts of things. It means you got to be able to use the App Store. You got to have networking. It's like it's basically got to have the capabilities of an iPod Touch. So you have to put Wi-Fi in there. You have to put a CPU that's capable of running whatever the current version of iOS is. You have to put enough RAM in there to do that. You have to have a big enough screen so that people don't have to, you know, resize their apps. So basically, it becomes like. Does this ever go iOS or does it come like a, a third platform where you've got iPad apps? This is getting confusing. You have iPad apps and you have iPhone apps. And those are clearly two different things. An iPad app is not an iPhone app. They're different things. Like they could look entirely. I know you can make universal apps, but from the user interface perspective, Apple would like you to make two different app experiences for those right. two platforms, even if it's in a, a universal app. Now you have tall and short iPhone screens. So that's another difference that in, in, in platforms, but that I'm sure that will eventually go away and they'll all be taller, right? And then we're assuming there's gonna be the iPad mini thing, but those are just gonna be iPad apps, so you're okay there. But if they did if I if the iPad iPod nano went iOS, now you definitely need another category of applications. You can't run phone apps on it. You can't run uh iPad apps on it. You've only can only run iPod nano apps on it. Because if you make the screen big enough to run iPhone apps, then doesn't it just become an iPod touch? Like how it stops being the nano then like now you're just making a different iPod touch, right? And that doesn't make sense to me. So I don't know. I, I like I thought there was a chance that they would try to make it go iOS this time around and maybe like just it uses iOS undercovers, but you don't know that you can't load apps onto it and stuff like that just to make it easier for them internally. Because I got to think that, again, the team that does the OS for the iPod nanos, I'm sure they're all nice people, but it seems like they're not on like the glory project, right? Well, still, I mean, they're still making a device that a lot of people use. They've got to be appreciative of that. Well, yeah, it's it's, 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 it's not like it's not like the number one project, but it's not like it's, it's bad. Oh, I I only write the OS for like one of Apple's best selling products. <laughs> like, oh, well, wow, what a crap job you have. It's not like they're the Microsoft Kin team, right? <laughs> or, or you work really hard and make something that actually is interesting, and they just can it like two weeks later. Like, right. it's it's not that bad, but. Apple is such a focused company that like Mac and iOS, like that's all they do. You know, their TV thing runs iOS because like they just, and, and Mac and iOS are still basically based on the same platform. It's all Darwin under the covers. There's so much sharing. It's like all the wood behind one arrow. That is so much Apple's corporate philosophy. And then these little weird things off to the side. And TV, the TV boxes are really interesting because 
they originally ran a variant of macOS and switched to a variant of iOS, right? So, you know, their product strategy is just at the platform, but it's always been one of those two big, big platforms that they do. And then, like, the iPods and the Nanos, like, first, the iPods, like, well, that doesn't run an OS. It's just, you know, got an interface with a little click wheel, but eventually everything becomes an OS. And it seems inevitable that Apple will have to address the iPod Nano, either can it as a product or fold it into the iPod Touch or make a third platform for small things. And I, I was actually excited about the idea of it staying in that small watch size and basically morphing into a smart watch mm-hmm. because that would truly be a different platform and you wouldn't be tempted to try to run like iPhone apps and stuff on it. Like, uh, But that apparently was not meant to be. Who knows? Maybe we'll switch back to it. You know, We did have the uh, diversion into the buttonless shuffle and then Apple changed it to mine and went back. So there's, there's nothing preventing Apple from trying this hideous thing out for a while and then going back to the little watch size nano in the next generation. Uh, I don't particularly recommend that. I do recommend they make this device n- look better. Uh, and I'm not a big fan of the uh, the little circle button type things. So that's, like, uh, that's all I've got in the Nano. That is m- my least favorite product from the announcement by far. But, you know, I'm sure they'll sell a lot of them and it's fine. It's just It's just the iPod Nano. I wonder what the future holds for that. Because they, like you said, they do experiment a lot with that. And I, I don't, I think, I think it's almost like we should expect a complete redesign of it every, every year or so. Every, every couple of years. Yeah. yeah. And like, why do they keep, re- it seems like they keep redesigning it because they haven't, uh, I mean, I guess they want to make it better, but like they haven't even decided like what their goals are. Because this is totally different than a little watch thing. Like it's not like our goal is to make it the smallest possible. Oh, okay. No, that's not our goal this time. Because this is not the smallest possible thing. They made it bigger so they could put a big screen on it. I don't know. The goals keep changing, but the price point has not changed. Like that's the thing that unifies this product. It's a thing. It's smaller than the big things and cheaper than the expensive things, but not a shuffle, right? The shuffle like has been more standardized. Like it, I, I really like that gum stick shuffle, the original one, long skinny thing. Yeah. So we can make it really small with a clip. Well, you that like that one. Yeah. And then they went too far and got rid of all the buttons and they said, okay, let's back up again. So the shuffle is kind of like back in a groove now. Like what will happen with the shuffle? It, it'll go away or we'll just stick with this a design like this, like it's a small square with a little clip on it. And maybe they'll change the stuff that's on the front of it. But yeah, I do a lot of my listening. Most of my podcasts listening actually on a shuffle on a series of shuffles that I've had because they tend to die painful deaths because they're so small and can easily be washed and dropped and stepped on other things like that. All right. One thirty. I think we're done. We did 88 minutes. I mean, that's not, it's is like, that enough? It's like a machine. It's enough, man. It's like, a, there we go. We're at these short shows. And again, one thirty. that's a short show. All right. All right, then. Well, you can follow John Syracusa on Twitter, S-I-R-A-C-U-S-A. He's also on the alpha.app.net. I'm Dan Benjamin on Twitter and Dan on that alpha.app.net thing. Which, do you use that, John? Are you still using that? Yeah, I actually have a thing on in my notes. Maybe we'll do it for the next show, but a topic related to that. I still use it. All right. Uh, so that's it. And we want to say thanks very much to our sponsors. And listen, we haven't encouraged people to do this for a while, but uh, you can uh, rate the show, rate and review the show by going just to iTunes and searching for Hypercritical. Of course, you need an account and then you can go and rate the show. And it helps, really helps promote the show and helps new listeners find the show. And those things are very important and we appreciate it. So thank you very much for doing that, John. You have uh, a really good week. You too, Dan. Take care.